Great theologian George Costanza once said, Worlds are colliding. Worlds are colliding. And if it's a dated reference, there you go. Now you know where we're talking. <laughs> Just sit with that deep truth for a minute. Now, for, for, for George, that meant fear and anxiety was, was colliding. And the way he would say it is, worlds are colliding. Worlds are colliding. He does not want these worlds to collide. It's the same fear a child has uh, on parent-teacher conference day. It's that, that fear where their parent walks in, and maybe a, a, a father with, with, a, with a retreating hairline walks in and, and embarrasses their son, per se, uh, and everyone has to see what their dad looks like. Or maybe it's uh, the, the mother comes in and, and she brazenly says, you got a little smudge on your face um, in front of all of their friends. The child knows this because the child lives in two different worlds, the world at home and the world in school. And these two worlds should never meet, right? You cannot cross the streams. That this is something that, that would, should never happen. Similarly, this happens maybe to you. You've seen this before. You've, you've been out at the grocery store. You've walked there, and you may see one of your old teachers at the grocery store at HEB or maybe a professor, and you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> this isn't right. <laughs> like, you, you're a normal person? You, you eat food? This doesn't, I, you are confined to room 203. That's all I see you as is the teacher or the professor. Don't be normal. Worlds are colliding. It hurts my brain. Now, while in other realms, that makes sense. That, that it, does, it does raise up some, some fear and confusion uh, when worlds collide. Uh, today, as we've seen and we've been celebrating at Pentecost, worlds colliding, uh, it, this is the, the truest form of that. It's where heaven meets earth. And it's the process, and in that process, the church is birthed, where it doesn't produce one congregant, doesn't produce two uh, congregants. It has 3,000 spiritual births happen at the day of Pentecost. And so today we're going to discover the meaning of Pentecost and how to know if you have the Spirit. So the meaning of Pentecost and how to know if you have the Spirit. And the way we're going to go for that, we're just going to have two points today. Lucky you. Uh, it's the power of Pentecost and the point of Pentecost. So the power and the point. Let's talk about the power. Uh, there are three phenomena that you may have heard during uh, during, uh, after the, the, one of the songs, we had the, the scripture reading come in throughout music and things like that, uh, that mark Pentecost. The three phenomena are not earth, wind, and fire, but that's close. Um, it is wind, fire, and tongues uh, that happen at Pentecost. And those are kind of the three that you just, there's, you can't get around them. Uh, let's look at verse 2 again. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so the first phenomena, uh, the first power was this violent wind. Have you ever experienced a violent wind? You ever been out on the ocean and just have felt a... a, a horrifyingly strong wind. I mean, if you even just even on the beach, and you can feel that. In an open space like flat central Texas, you can feel the winds be very, very strong, and, it, and it, it can rock you. You can go, this is not safe for us to be out right now. 
The wind can be so violent, it can, it can shock you. It can, there's so much power in the wind. Now remember, it says, it's like a wind. Like the sound of a wind, right? Um, and rem- I want us to see here is that this is something that came from outside of them. This isn't something that they stirred up within themselves. I think that's important later uh, to be, when we remember about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something that wells up within them. Uh, it was something that happened to them. But the second phenomena was the tongues of fire or these, these flames that seemed to rest on each person. Uh, but they were, they were what seemed to be tongues of fire, right? Again, it's this, it appears to be like this. There's this image here, some, some famous images of trying to depict something like this of what does this mean to have the, these little flames just hovering over each person? Again, this feels like um, in the book of Revelation, you have, you have uh, the Apostle John who's like trying to describe God's throne room and he's like, and it's, and it's like there's all these angels with all these eyes all over them and, then, and they're swirling around and it's like there's this rainbow and, and he's just so excited to, to, to describe the magnificence of God's holiness. He's like, it's like that, but it's not that. Because if you try to describe God in that way, it limits God. And so I think this is something similar. Like Luke is saying, I'm seeing something so magnificent. It's like this? These tongues of fire, but I don't really know what to say about it. <laughs> but one thing we can glean from it is the presence of fire was there. And if you look at the Old Testament, uh, whenever you see the presence of God, he shows up as fire. You think about that? Like when, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, there's the, the blazing torch um, that goes through the animal halves, right? And then with Moses, you had the burning bush. Or when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, you know, they're, they're, God comes down as fire and smoke. And then when, when leading Israel through the wilderness, there's the pillar of fire and smoke. And you had Ezekiel who sees visions of God and it's of fire. And so fire marks the presence of God. Having that in mind, what is happening at Pentecost? What is happening is that on Pentecost, every believer becomes a burning bush every believer is a burning bush housing the presence of god like the glory of god has come into every single believer resting on each of them and i want you to think about this because they're in this room with apostles now apostles are probably the most official officials you can get in the hierarchy of church right they're they're the most called ones you had you had jesus himself chose these apostles he, they, they were trained by the master, sent out to do the mission by God himself, right? And they had no difference to the lay person next to them in this moment. That the, the, the presence of God came upon every single person, regardless of your status beforehand, and so that the clergy and lay person alike have full access to the presence of God. And what does that presence do when it comes upon you? Well, Romans 8 tells us the Holy Spirit's job is this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Oh, I love that. That the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us that we are God's children. That we have that type of of relationship and and, and access to remind you of God's love like 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 a healthy, loving father and mother caring for their children. Now, Tim Keller, whom I'm personally mourning his his passing, has this wonderfully beautiful quote. He says, 
The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Do you believe that? That you have the type of access that says, I'm going to go wake God up. I have that type of intimacy that I'm going to go, go, wake up, wake up, wake up. I had a nightmare. I have that type of relationship with my heavenly Father. I have that type of access. And when the Holy Spirit comes down on you, like we have, a, we have all the right in the world as children and sons of the King that we can wake the King up. We can experience the Father's love and be wrapped up in the Father's arms to, to experience God in such a way to know that I am loved, to know that I'm cared for. That's what we have. And if we have that, then why do we get down when someone snubs us? Like, if I have that type of relationship and I know that the king loves me in such a way like that, then why do I get down when I'm disrespected? Because I have all the respect in the world. I have all the love in the world and respect from God himself. God's presence changes everything. Or at least it should. If we realize the presence of God with us, we realize the fire that's been given to us. Well, the last phenomena that happens in Pentecost is there is the, the speaking in tongues. And verse 4 says again, I'll read it again, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages. Now, I think we need to make the distinction here because speaking in tongues uh, can get very confusing. Um, all throughout the New Testament, you see the references to speaking in tongues. Like in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul is giving direction around how to do this. And what Paul is talking about there, and most other places are talking about, is this heavenly babble, uh, this this mystical spiritual language uh, that no one seems to understand, which is why Paul says you should have an interpreter, right? What's happening here is not that. There, they didn't know what people were saying, which is why they said you should have an interpreter. Here, it's the exact opposite. Here, everyone knows what everyone's saying. Like everyone is, it's as if you found yourself in an international airport and all of a sudden you heard German and you heard Kurdish and you heard uh, Swahili and Zulu and you're going, oh, I understand that. Oh, yes, this, your plane's over here. And you're like, wait, how did I know what you just said? And as you responded to them in your native tongue, they understood what you said and it may have taken a second to realize we were just speaking each other's tongues, but all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, how does this happen, <laughs> right? This is, the, this is the miracle that is happening on Pentecost. This is the Rosetta Stone miracle that all of a sudden we can now communicate with one another. It's the great reversal of Babel. And at Babel, you had the, 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 these people trying to build this tower to the heavens to, to sinfully and pridefully and, and, and ugly, uh, ugly uh, is a word I'll use, to make a name for themselves. They were trying to make a name for themselves, and God says, I'll confuse them and, and, and confuse their languages. Um, and then they got in fights, right? But here, this is the great reversal of Babel, where they all of a sudden can now understand one another and speak it in their own na native tongue. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does God do that? I think this is critical. I think it is critical for us to see that at, at Pentecost, the significance of every language means that no language is superior. And a lot of times language with language comes culture. And no culture is superior. In Christianity, there is no language or culture that is the right culture. 
Therefore, Christianity goes into every culture and honors every culture. It also goes into every culture, because no, no culture is the right one, and it renews every culture. God doesn't let one culture to rule them all, right? That God goes into every one and, and, and honors every culture and renews every culture. And so I, I think it just, just to push the envelope a little further, this means that Christianity is not a white man's religion. That, 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 can, be, that can be claimed about it, but Jesus himself wasn't white. We'll just start there. I think, I think we, we cut ourselves off from a fuller picture of the God that we serve in the gospel when we limit that God to just one culture or just one cultural understanding of who God is. Like, that's not what we, we teach. That's not what the Bible teaches. You don't have to be American to be Christian. In fact, it's probably hard, right? At Pentecost, God kills our ethnocentrism. He kills it. At Pentecost, it kills our bent to prioritize my own culture. That's what's happening here. When everyone can speak with one another and we can understand one another, this is the picture of heaven, y'all. This is what we're going to be able to do. You're not going to lose your language, but we're now going to understand it, right? This is a beautiful picture here. Now, not everyone was impressed with this feat of strength. Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And Peter's rebuttal, maybe a little lacking, verse 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Is that all you got, Peter? <laughs> no other reason for arguing that they're not drunk? <laughs> that happens around five o'clock, right? Like, <laughs> come on, Peter. No, the reason that people assumed that they were drunk is, is partly probably in part because of the, the languages and people being excited about that and going back and forth. But I don't think that's all that happened there. Why did they assume that they were drunk? I think, I believe, that it was because a, a joyful fearlessness that was evident amongst the believers. That there was this joyful fearlessness that they were too happy to care what people thought. And like when, when you have a joyful fearlessness, it can almost seem like you've had a little liquid courage, right? That you're, you're like, I don't care what happens to me. <laughs> Are you okay? But they're not drunk <laughs> because alcohol is a depressant. The reason you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid right that's what happens like it distorts your reality it distorts your thinking and you're like i'm happy because i don't have to think i'm happy because i'm stupid but in the holy spirit it's the exact opposite in the holy spirit i'm happy through clarity through clarity finally seeing god's love for me that the god who holds the stars in place holds me in his arms that's what I can finally see when the Holy Spirit comes on me and go, now I get it. It's not just something in my head, it's something that's in my heart as well. That I can see it truly. And so it's a holy clarity, not a happy drunkenness that's happening here. Now, have we in our churches exhibited anything like this for the watching world to accuse us of? Would... would has anything happened which might make people think that we're drunk? Maybe you thought that earlier today when, when the scripture was reading and people started just talking away. I know I did. I was like, oh, do they not know what they're doing right now? <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> it forced me to think through this. I was like, oh, are we on the same page? I love it. Thank you, Louie, for leading this. Right? But do we live in such a way that people would, would say, 
I don't know. I don't really see many signs of the Spirit work their life. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working in one way. Or would people say, no, they're drunk. They're out of control. I don't know what's going on with them. They're living in such a way that does not make sense. There is a, uh, a recklessness, it feels like, from the outside. Do you ever worry when you're in worship who's watching you? worry like is it okay if I raise my hands is it okay if I get a little emotional is that allowed here (laughs) love it Yvonne it is okay but I think many of us are so concerned at how I will look worshiping God than actually letting go with unbridled worship I know I am Well, we've talked about the power of Pentecost, but let's now talk about the point of Pentecost. What's the point? Now, a point can have two meanings, one point, but the word point can have two meanings. Um, And one could be the most important idea, but the second meaning it can mean is also like it's telos, uh, the end goal of what it's working towards. And so the most important idea of Pentecost, it comes from knowing what Pentecost is. Pentecost is this Jewish feast celebrating when Israel received the Ten Commandments. That's what it is. It's a Jewish feast celebrating when Israel received the Ten Commandments. Because you remember, first comes Passover, the day when the Israelites leave slavery, and they, they leave Egypt behind. They go off through the desert, and then off they go. Fifty days later, they come to Mount Sinai. Moses then goes up to the, mount, uh, the top of the Mount Sinai, and he, he gets the law from God, and he comes down, and he gives the law of God, the Ten Commandments, to the people of God, and then they, they celebrate. God gifts his, his, his ten ways of flourishing to God's people, and so Pentecost is just a commemoration of that day. And I think we need to have that in mind, which many of us with our eyes that are not trained to see it don't normally see it. I think we need to have that in our mind as we're reading Acts 2. Now, Jesus is the better Moses. Moses went up to the mountain of God to receive the law of God to come down to the people of God. Jesus is the better Moses. At the Passover meal, Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he himself becomes the Paschal lamb. He himself becomes the sacrifice when he dies and resurrects. And then 50 days later, Jesus doesn't go up to Mount Sinai alone to meet with God like Moses. Jesus himself was God. But Jesus, at his ascension, does go meet the Father. And now remember, at Mount Sinai, everyone's afraid. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's fire coming down. They're like, Moses, you go. (laughs) That seems like a a job for you. Moses became the mediator between God and humanity. And when Moses came down, right, that's the difference there. The mediator came down. But when Jesus ascends to the Father, now not a mediator comes down, but the Holy Spirit comes down. The fire, the presence of God now comes down and rests on people and doesn't burn or consume. The fire comes down and then Peter preaches this fantastic sermon you heard read. Thank you for reading there. Um, this beautiful sermon here. And it's a retelling of the most important story in the history of the world. It's, and it's, it's the point of Peter's sermon, if you didn't get it. The point of Peter's sermon is simple. It's Jesus. It is 100% focused on Jesus. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Maybe that's how he emphasized it. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Not a seeker-friendly sermon. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Oh, I love that. It's impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And so, Peter, I want you to see this. Peter is no longer focused on his place in the kingdom. He's now focused on the king himself. Do y'all see that? Do you see the transformation in, in Peter? Peter went from arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and you know, it's all about me, to now it's all about Jesus. And now everyone has equal access to the Father, and he's excited by it. He's enthused by that. The point of Pentecost is not the miraculous signs, though they're fun to, watch, to look at. The point of Pentecost is what those signs pointed to, and that's Jesus. And we get that. Jesus is the point. The meaning of Pentecost is that God is dwelling with his people. I mean, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. In a much more fuller way right now, God is with us. It begun at the Incarnation, in Jesus, but it was more realized, more fully, when the Spirit falls on every person. And as I was reading through this passage, I realized this Acts 2, goodness gracious, this, this chapter summarizes the values of Mosaic. We have three values as a church. We're gospel-centered, we're multicultural, and spirit-led. And as I look through those values, I'm going, hey, that's exactly Acts 2. It's gospel-centered. It's all about Jesus. It's multicultural. You have, you have the Rosetta Stone kingdom here, and, it, and it's spirit-led, trying to follow where the spirit is leading in repentance and discipleship and service. This is, this is what is happening in Acts 2 here. Like, it is, it's this beautiful thing. And so in one sense, you might be able to say Mosaic is Pentecostal. Right? Right, Yvonne? <laughs> but I want us to be careful because sometimes when we hear the word Pentecostal, we think of, uh, we think of something different. We, we want to muster up some ex spiritual experience when we think of Pentecostal. Um, and some of us get worried when we don't do that. Some of us get worried that says, I've never spoken in tongues. I've never, I've never seen these, 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 these acts, these miraculous acts. And I just want to say that those are outside forces that God bring, brings on, right? This is not something that you have to muster up within you. That's not what this passage is about. The main thing of Pentecost is that God is with us. And so how do you know that God is with you? You ever wonder that? Like, how do I know if I actually have the Holy Spirit? Like, I, I'm, I'm here with you, but do I have God's Spirit in me? And that's when I want us to talk about the end or the telos of Pentecost, because verses 42 through 47 describe these five evidences that the Spirit is truly at work in your life. Not the three phenomena, the wind, fire, tongues, but these five data points that, that not only, they need to be evident, but they're not going to be evident perfectly because we're all on a journey and we're all going to miss it, we're all going to mess up. But if you don't have any of these evidences, you have to wonder, is God at work in my life? And so if, if you've really embraced the gospel, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, then this is what's true for you. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, let's go through that list real quick. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first sign, the first evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. That, that they, they got excited to, to be talking about what the apostles were talking about, which was namely Jesus himself. They wanted, they wanted to learn and grow and to learn more about who this, this king and this, this sacrificial love is. Now, I get this question a lot. 
do you have to read the Bible to be a Christian? What do you think? The answer is no. (laughs) You do not have to read the Bible to be a Christian because even the early church didn't have the Bible as you have it. The early church had fragments of the New Testament, had portions or maybe just one letter. So you know you do not have to read the Bible to be a Christian at all. However, we do have the Bible available to us. And there's one in front of you in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take it. It's yours. And if you have it available, why wouldn't you want to read it? It's, I think, how we might want to think about this this way. You don't have to do this. But it's as if you had a love letter from the person you, you, you admired so deeply, and they wrote you this beautiful love letter. And I just ask, you say, do I have to read it? <laughs> no. But when you want to read it, that's what we get to do. And so they devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then they devoted themselves to something else. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, uh, which means to share, to, have, to share things in common with one another. And they were sharing their lives with one another. They were devoted to this in such a way that they were committed to one another. And I, I use this illustration. What if we related to our families the way we relate to a fast food restaurant? You ever been through a fast food restaurant and you uh, order the food and it was, but by the time you got there, it was really slow. You're like, is this really fast food? It took a really long time to get here. You ordered the food and then you went home and they forgot your sandwich or whatever it might have been. You're like, that's the last time I go to that place, right? What if we related to our families the way we relate to a fast food restaurant? Like, my family's slow. <laughs> they forget what I say all the time. You know, I think I, think I might need a different family. Like, we don't do that, right? Because we're devoted to our families. We don't treat them like a fast food restaurant. And in the same way, they're devoted, not just to their families, but to their their brothers and sisters in the church. They're devoted to one another. The good, the bad, the ugly. They're committed to one another. Okay? Then they opened up their pantry. They're breaking bread. Now, some people think this means they're, they're doing the Lord's Supper. Maybe. I think many other scholars say this is more of a common meal. They were actually just eating together with one another. And so one of the five evidences that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is that you're eating with people. Doesn't, it sounds very mundane, right? <laughs> Doesn't sound too spiritual. But powerful things happen when you share a meal with one another. You get to know people at a deeper, deeper level there. It's a, something beautiful is at work there. And so let's open up our, our kitchen tables. And all of this is now being bathed in prayer. Malcolm last week preached a sermon on prayer. Go, if you missed it, go listen to that. But I think many times we, we think, if I pray for 10 minutes, I'm probably good for the year. Like, do you remember I prayed, like, back in February? So, like, I'm good. <laughs> like, we, that's the way we think a lot. When they, before Pentecost happened, they just got this new disciple, and now they're, they stay in the upper room for 10 days praying. They spent 10 days praying We're like, 10 minutes is good. No, 10 days praying, and 3,000 people come to faith. I think we have an overinflated view of how much we can control in life. And we just need to see how dependent upon God we actually are. To to go to the Lord in prayer. The, the The fifth evidence here comes in verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so the last trait um, that is taking up residence in your heart, if you have the spirit there, is this spirit of, of radical generosity. 
of just radical generosity, which is just such a beautiful trait. If you've ever seen someone be just radically generous, you can't help but go like, oh, that was amazing. Like, has that ever happened to you where someone has just surprised you with such radical generosity? You, you're almost speechless and you go, why would you do that? Like there's something beautiful about it. It's the epitome of realizing that it's all about Jesus and others and not about me. It's evidence that God is working in you and through you to the people around you. And you just ask, isn't this the type of church you want to belong to? The church that actually does this, that has a collective view of we, not me. That if you suffer, I suffer too. And when you rejoice, I rejoice too. That I'm so happy for you. We, I want us to rejoice more and tell more stories about things that are going on in your, y'all's life. Amen. I mean, this is true koinonia. This is true fellowship. That they, they shared everything with one another. Of course, you need something? I got you. I got you. Like, can you imagine someone selling their property and giving you the proceeds? You're like, whoa. <laughs> you sure about this? <laughs> This is why people thought they were drunk. This is why they thought they were drunk. They're like, this seems kind of wild. You, th- you have not thought this through. Maybe take a breather. Like it's, but in God's economy, this is completely normal. In God's economy, this is completely normal because we have this fearless joy, this fearless joy that is now unleashed on this earth. And so the presence of these five things demonstrate that the Spirit is at work in your life. This is worlds colliding right? This is when heaven meets earth. This is what it looks like. This is how we live differently. And so when the Holy Spirit came, not just at Pentecost, but it comes in your life, when you do become a believer, you, you realize these things are happening. You want to learn more about Jesus. You want to spend time with one another. You want to eat a meal. You want to pray. You want to give generously. Do you see these evidences at work in your life? Is there, is there one or two that you are saying, I need to grow in. What's stopping you? Is it fear? Is it something that we need to to kill, to, to, to mortify, put to death? At Pentecost, worlds collide and the Holy Spirit takes up status in your house and reminds you that you are a child of the King. And you can wake them up for that cold cup of water in the middle of the night. And so I'll leave you with this. Let's just be so obsessed with Jesus here at this church that it creates such a multiracial, multinational, multilingual, joy-filled community that people think we're drunk because we have just this joy-filled community and we are just so generous with one another. The world doesn't know what to do with it. Let me pray for us.